What's going on, guys? Thanks so much for tuning into today's episode. I'm sitting down with Dr. Lisa Lewis, and we're going to be talking all about nutrition, exercise, and mental health. So uh, if you are new, welcome to the podcast, and thanks so much for, for tuning into today's episode. As always, if you enjoy the podcast, just make sure you smash the subscribe button and turn on notifications to let you know every time a new episode drops, which is every single week on Wednesday. So uh, Dr. Lisa Lewis, thank you so much for jumping on. It's great to have you here. Can you uh, tell the listeners a little bit about who you are and some of the work that you've done um, relevant to today's uh, topic? Yes. Thank you for having me, first of all. And I am a licensed psychologist. I come from a psychotherapy background. So by trade, I'm a person who has private conversations with another person about some aspect of their life, which could be anything from their mental health to goals they have in their life to ways they want to change themselves, grow themselves or evolve. Uh, the reason that um, I'm coming in to talk to you on these topics is because after finishing a master's degree in clinical psychology and working with people who had mental health problems for a while, I went back to school and got a doctoral degree in counseling and sports psychology, which has more of a focus on thriving, flourishing, kind of positive aspects of psychology beyond just correcting mental health. And in my professional life, after graduating, I have had the opportunity to do a lot of speak engagements and work with fitness business owners, other kinds of fitness professionals, um, and fitness enthusiasts and athletes on how to motivate, how to change and grow, um, and how to really integrate mental health and fitness into a lifestyle that is sustainable over time. Awesome. Yeah. And my first introduction to you was when you were um, presenting at the uh, Kabuki Education Week. It was a really, really great presentation. Thank and that you. was one of the reasons why I reached out in the first place was because I thought you had a lot of really great insights and a lot of great information. And I think this is something that really is lacking. There's a couple areas that I think are really lacking, especially in the strength sport world and bodybuilding uh, kind of circles, which is like, talking about mental health, talking about eating disorders, talking about kind of some of the things that are outside of, you know, just reps and sets and macros and things like that, that tend to really, you know, spill over into your execution of those things. And so I'm really interested to, to kind of hear what you have to say. And I guess a, a good place to start would be uh, just kind of talking about and, and giving like a sort of a baseline of, of what mental health is like, what is that scope? A lot of people talk about it. A lot of people say, oh, I'm taking a mental health day or, you know, doing this to improve my mental health. But it's kind of rooted in this sort of really vague and ambiguous kind of mysterious gray area. So can you give a little bit more of a concise description of, um, you know, what you mean when you say melt, sorry, mental health? Uh, and so we can kind of root the rest of this discussion. Yeah, I 100% agree that it's pretty nebulous what it means to have mental health or what mental health is. And often people describe it by what it is not, you know, they'll say it's not depression, it's not anxiety, yeah. it's yeah, exactly. not dysfunction. So mental health means that an individual is able to be productive in their life, enjoy their life and cope with life. Uh, meaning that they can be resilient. So someone with mental health is not a person who doesn't have any problems, but they are a person who can incur their problems, you know, meet them head on, cope with them or figure out strategies for coping with them. And at the same time, they can be functioning in their relationships and either at work or in school, whatever their roles are. So it's basically being able to handle your business and being able to enjoy your life. So I really love the one distinction you made as well is, you know, how you said it's, it's not a person without problems, because that's a lot of the times what I think people get caught up in is they're like, oh, I have so many problems mm. and it's stressing me out. And it's like, you know what? Stress is normal. This is completely, you know, you don't, you don't have depression. You don't have this. And I mean, obviously I'm not saying this to people, I'm not diagnosing anyone, but I mean, I think a lot of times people jump to conclusions about things because they have some sort of negative experience or something like that. And they tend to over dramatize their, their life. And so I'm really glad that you kind of made that distinction there. And is there sort of a, I know you did kind of outline a bit of a baseline, but I also think that people tend to be a little bit polarized on this as well. And they think it a little bit more of like an on off switch as opposed to like a volume knob in terms of mm -hmm. where you sit on that spectrum of, of mental health, let's say. Yeah. Can you just kind of touch on that a little bit? Yeah. Mental health is a very broad spectrum and we tend to have a set point or like a zone 
where we hang out in. So there is plenty of evidence to indicate that some of our kind of baseline is genetically predetermined. So for example, if you have a set of parents who dealt, have dealt with depression in their life, or you know that anxiety runs in the family, that might impact your set point. And what that also means is how high or how low you, you might be able to go on that mental health spectrum. So if zero is like extremely depressed and you don't want to live and you can't function and you don't have any relationships and you don't want to go on and 10 is like Zen master, happy, go lucky, you know, rainbows and butterflies. Um, you know, think about five as being right in the middle. And if somebody's right in the middle, mood in the middle, I think about it like M&Ms, they have a zone. Maybe what, during good times, they're a six or a seven. And during really hard, stressful times, they float down to a four or a three. So we all have a genetic predisposition and then we all have kind of a zone. So even people who are very, very happy or tend to have a lot of um, positive emotion in their life, they can have tough times where they float down a little bit um, and they could increase their happiness. Um, but people who deal with depression in their lives or a lot of anxiety in their lives, it can really, really bring them down and get in the way of their life or they can improve and move that number up, but maybe not to a 10 or a nine, the same way, the same way somebody who's, you know, got really, really happy genes or, or parents might. So we know there's this idea of a set point and a range of emotions that somebody can have. I think the trick for people who are listening is to understand what are the things in your life that help you to get to that upper limit, the upper end of your reaction range, if you were to super geek out. So what are the things that cause your anxiety to be lower, your mood to be higher, your sleep, your appetite, your sex drive to kind of be at their optimal level? And what are the things that bring you down? And then how do you create a lifestyle around that to get to that, that highest level of your reaction range? And what do you do when you notice those things bringing you down to the lower end? So that's where choices and lifestyle and getting support really come into play for mental health. It's not that it takes away problems. It's just that it helps you to maximize, you know, your personal range of mental health and getting to that upper limit. Yeah, I think I, I love the description you just gave. And that's one thing that I like to talk about a lot of, not necessarily from the standpoint of mental health, but is, is just resiliency, yes. right? Like, you know, a lot of the times people will say, it, it, what is it? Just like one of those like Nike quotes. It's like, it doesn't get easier. You just get stronger or something like mm-hmm. that. But you know what I mean? As, as cliche as it sounds, that really is what it is. You know, like. Absolutely. I, I actually think that training gets exponentially harder, the better you get. It doesn't get easier. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, Amen. Yeah. But it's just a matter of like, you stop expecting it to be easy. And, and one of the things that I love when people say is I'll have some of my athletes and they'll be like, oh, it's so heavy. Like your sport is literally lifting heavy weights. Are you surprised? Like, what are you talking about? Of course it's heavy, but how did it move? How did, you know what I mean? And so I think sometimes too, that translates into, into uh, maybe how we perceive, you know, certain situations and, and uh, that can obviously be really impacted by the environment, which is just kind of what you were saying. And Mm -hmm. I would actually love to, to get your feedback on, how the environment interacts with your sort of biological set points and what some of those things might be that actually do interact to cause maybe negative affect or positive emotions and how those things can kind of vary depending on your experience. Because, you know, my experience dealing just, well, just with myself and then also maybe some other people is a lot of the times, you know, there, there's kind of like this victim mentality of like, Oh, I'm broken. I'm this, I'm that, Mm. you know, woe is me. And then there's, kind of the opposite end where it's like, oh, everything is because of me. Everything is my fault, you know? And so there's either like this, this complete lack of responsibility or accepting way too much responsibility for things that have nothing to do with you. It's like, oh, there was an earthquake and, you know, my house split in two, but I should have known that and bought a different property in an area that didn't have earthquakes. And it's like, okay, I think that's a little bit too much, but can you kind of talk about that a little bit? Yeah. So what you're describing is in the literature or in psychology speak is locus of causality. So locus means where's the center and causality means what caused that. 
So when an individual has a really high level or highly internalized locus of causality, it means, you know, I, I am in control of my life. I am determining my destiny. I take ownership for the things that happen around me. You know, I am the major variable that is influencing these things around me. What's beneficial about that is that those people tend to have agency. They tend to feel competent. Um, they tend to take responsibility for things. What's hard about that is there's a lot of stuff in life that happens that's outside of our control. So when individuals start to say, you know, we lost the game or the competition because I, you know, didn't do my special hand clap dance routine before the game, you know, that's a little bit too much. And that can bring you down on the opposite end of the spectrum. People who have a very external locus of causality is like, you know, life is total chaos. I have nothing to do with the outcomes that happen. Like there's all these other forces that are at play and I'm just this like powerless, um, you know, kind of seashell on the seashore getting whipped around. Uh, and so what's positive about that is it's much less stressful. What's hard about that is there's no ownership. There's no agency. There's no sense of, of having control or autonomy in one's life. So there are pros and cons to each end of the spectrum. And what we want people to be able to do is be flexible. And what flexible means is seeing things in life that happen as unstable, which means um, it means you can't predict. There's no fatalism. You can't say I'm always going to lose a competition because I'm a loser. or I'm never going to deadlift X amount of weight because I never have been able to before. It means you say, you know, I was super dehydrated and I was in a bad mood and I had just done a heavy lift the day before, or it means you say, there's all kinds of things that make this outcome unstable. And maybe the next time I'll be able to do it. Um, it helps people to be able to be flexible in their thinking. And so that they can take ownership for the things that they have control over and maybe let go of the stuff or account for variables that are outside of their control. Yeah, and I think that's a really great point that you said about the deadlift and, and being dehydrated, right? Because there's this kind of a fine line between identifying legitimate reasons for why something happened uh -huh. and then looking at that and being like, okay, that I can control. Make sure I'm hydrated, make sure I get enough sleep, do all that stuff. Yeah. That being a very productive way of looking at things versus, oh, it's because of this and just kind of making excuses. Like even though those two things seem very similar on, on the surface, they're, they're very different in terms of like the intention and potential future, future outcomes that they could, uh, they could definitely create. So that, mm -hmm. that, was a, that was a really great example. Um, I read a, a systematic review actually several years ago about like the impact of non-pharmacological interventions on uh, depression, anxiety, PTSD, and things like that. And so yeah. this was several years ago. So absolutely feel free to completely correct me if I'm just wildly wrong on this. But one of the things that, that it was talking about was, um, it was, it was, it listed a handful of things or interventions that were really, really effective, again, outside of pharmacological, pharmacological interventions. And they listed nutrition, mm -hmm. exercise, having a job, uh, having a significant other, and then having an active social life. And I thought those were all pretty interesting. And, and obviously the ones we're going to kind of really expand on today are going to be the nutrition, um, and the exercise, but I mean, mm -hmm. I wanted to kind of get your feedback on that and see like, how far off am I on my understanding of that being accurate? No, that's a, can I get an amen right there? I mean, okay, that awesome. is wellness. You know, that is when people say like, what is wellness? You can think of kind of a pie chart and inside that pie chart are all the components that you just mentioned. And so taking care of your wellness is prevention and it is intervention. And when we, when we talk to people or, you know, if you've ever known someone or been someone who's depressed or very anxious or dealing with trauma, all of those aspects of your life, there is distress and impairment. Distress means it feels bad. It makes you hurt. And impairment means you can't function properly. So um, I love what you just outlined. And, and the other thing I love about it is that there's, there's lots of inroads there. There's lots of slices in that pie. So somebody can start let's say they hate exercise, they can start with nutrition. And that road of nutrition is going to lead them eventually to exercise. So I think that all roads lead to Rome when it comes to wellness. And you can always begin with what the person feels most interested in or capable of. 
Yeah, no, that's that's a great point. There, there's definitely a lot of uh, interrelationship there, especially even like, just like the social aspect, right? Like in powerlifting, you have kind of powerlifting clubs. I mean, yeah. at, at my gym, there's a pretty tight knit community there and everyone there is like, you know, really good friends and you can develop a lot of relationships there. So it's, it's that's pretty cool. Um, so I guess that kind of brings me to the next question. Like what sort of impact does, you know, fitness and exercise and things like that actually have on mental health? And, and I guess we can kind of stay in the realm of like, I guess, depression, anxiety, PTSD. Mm-hmm. At least for yeah. me, those are the ones that I hear most about within the fitness sphere. Yeah, it's 99% completely awesome and fabulous. And it is medicine because exercise and fitness Im- impacts neuroplasticity in a really positive way. So one author that I like to refer to a lot is John Rady. He's a psychiatrist here in Boston. Um, through Harvard University. And years ago, he wrote a book called Spark, which I think is still very relevant today. And essentially, John Rady's position is that the effect of exercise is on the brain, that it in it affects, um, oh gosh, BDNF, which is brain-derived um, neurotropic factor, which he calls miracle growth for the brain. Um, so it impacts your brain and its neuroplasticity in a positive way. And he says, basically a side effect of exercise is getting stronger, getting leaner, having cardiovascular benefit. He's like, all that physical stuff is like a happy side effect. And I think we usually think of it as the inverse, you know, that maybe, maybe a side effect or a benefit is how we feel mentally. And then the chapters in his book are chapter One is about exercise and attention, how exercise really enhances your ability to attend and consolidate memory. Chapter, the next chapter is on exercise and depression. So he talks about the the interplay between exercise, BDNF, and serotonin levels. Also increases in self-esteem, which of course impacts depression. The next chapter is on exercise and anxiety. and on and on and on. And so what's happened since he's written that book over the last 15 years is there's been this huge, fabulous body of research in all these different areas about beneficial impacts of exercise on these areas. And also notably on trauma. So the authority on trauma is Besser van der Kolk. He wrote a book years ago called The Body Keeps the Score, which is really about how your physiology and your neurology is impacted by trauma. And part of the what to do about this part of the book is being engaged with your body, being in touch with your body and using your body um, autonomously and with agency, which can include exercise and physical activity. A friend of mine just wrote a book called Lifting Heavy Things, which is about powerlifting and weightlifting for the treatment of and recovery from trauma. Really cool book. So um, any way you slice it, exercise is extremely fantastic for your psychology and for your brain. And I said 99% instead of a hundred, because yes, there is risk of addiction. Um, you mentioned eating disorders before, um, you know, if you have been in the world of powerlifting or figure competing or even CrossFit games, there are extreme examples of people who, um, continue in their eating and exercise habits, even though it is causing them injury, distress, impairment. Um, Maybe they're choosing it over relationships or going to work or other things. So there are exceptions to the rule, but I would say the rule is exercise is absolutely amazing and and crucial really for your mental health and well-being. Yeah. And I mean, especially like after coming out of COVID now. So I'm, I'm living in Calgary for the time being uh-huh. and Canada had some of like the craziest restrictions yeah. and the number of suicides and the number oh. of like utilization of the, the hotlines and all these different yeah. resources for suicide prevention just absolutely skyrocketed. Yeah. And, and it's like the big outcry was like, we need to get out. We need to be active. We need to be, you know, and I mean, yep. essentially exactly what I was saying. It's like, okay, people are losing their jobs. They're losing their relationships, their partnerships. Yep. They're not exercising. Yep. And that's impacting their ability to probably eat healthy and things like that, because I would imagine they're probably utilizing that now as like some sort of like consolation mechanism or not mechanism, but you know what I mean? 
reward. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and it's, it's, it's pretty crazy actually. So it's, it's nice to see the gyms opening up and like, just mm-hmm. even talking to people and they're like, Oh my God, I feel so much better now that I'm exercising. Yeah. So it's really not surprising. And actually it was, it was pretty interesting because I remember, I can't remember where I read this from, but I remember reading a paper a long, long time ago. And it was talking about how exercise is the number one thing to prevent cognitive decline as you age. Number one, and it is the number yeah. one thing. Mm-hmm. And, and it's, it's kind of funny because you would think like intuitively it would make sense to be like, oh, well, maybe reading or doing things that are cognitively demanding, but it's like, no, apparently just regular physical exercise is like the best thing you can do, which is, which is kind of crazy, you know? It's so, it's really fascinating to me. In the fall, I attended a neuropsychiatry conference which was mostly neuroscientists and neuropsychiatrists and psychologists who basically are only doing like assessment of not so much some mental health, but more kind of brain diseases. And one of the authorities at a local hospital here in Boston called Brigham and Women, who studies Alzheimer's disease and dementia, did a fabulous presentation. And I am not exaggerating to say the number one intervention and the number one predictor of developing um, Alzheimer's or dementia was the rate of physical activity, the level of physical activity. So we know that there's a gene that predisposes someone to Alzheimer's. That gene aside, the other really, really strong predictor is exercise. So it's really not to be understated how good it is for your brain. That's crazy. It's crazy. Like that's wild. Yes. So then how would you go about building and developing that mental resiliency? Because I would imagine that, you know, you do have some sort of an upper limit or threshold for your, your tolerance to stress and things like that that you were kind of discussing earlier. Yeah. Um, Is that, is there some sort of like wiggle room if you optimize, let's say your environment and some of the epigenetic factors that are available to you? It's an awesome question. And I would say you can look at your own expertise and strength training to use that. So One topic I love to talk about with my friend, Mike T. Nelson, is this idea of anti-fragility, that human beings, when you expose us to stress or put us under stress, we can get stronger or we can break depending on how much it is. So when you're training somebody, you want to find a weight that's as heavy as it can be without injuring the person that they're physically capable of picking up, right? So you're looking for that pocket. What's Enough that it's challenging and stresses their body, but not so challenging that you break them or that they, they're not able to pick up the weight. And so that's the window in, for your body and to get strong physically. And that's the window for your brain and how to get stronger mentally or what's called mental toughness or resilience. So it's choosing activities. It's choosing hobbies. It's choosing professional pursuits or personal relationships that challenge you, that stimulate you, that maybe stress you and push you, but that do not cause distress and impairment. In other words, break you. Yeah. So it's like a, a dose response relationship, like enough to get better, but not so much that you're just going crazy and you can't handle it. You got it. You got it. So one, one guy that I'm, uh, I really like this guy, Grant Cardone. He's not in the fitness field at all. He's, okay. uh, he's in sales and, and um, real estate and stuff like that. But okay. one of the things that he always says about uh, getting better anyways, from like when he's giving maybe lectures or something like that, is he always talks about how you want new problems. You know, He's like, always look yeah. to gain new problems. So when I was starting out my business, we didn't have any clients. That was a problem. Then I got to the point where I was so busy that I actually had clients dropping off because I couldn't fulfill their, their services. He's mm-hmm. like, that's a good problem to have. Don't slow down, keep hammering and find a way to deal with that problem. And then once you deal with that problem, then he, he's like, he talks about like higher class problems. Yeah. And, and I mean, like even right now, like, again, I live in Canada. I mean, the problems we have here are really not problems. Like when I was growing up, we lived in a very difficult environment before I came here. Mm. And like, those are problems. I lived in India. Those are problems mm-hmm. over here. It's like, oh my God, my tire's flat. And it's like, oh, you're tired to your Mercedes that you drive to work. And it, like, sorry, I don't feel bad for you. You know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. even though it's a problem, it's really like, it's like, come on, be, be grateful for those problems. Those are high quality problems to have. Mm-hmm. So in recovery, we call in 12 step programs, we call those luxury problems. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah. And that's what you're talking about. So there's two ways to look at that. One is it's good to keep things in perspective. 
like you're, you're doing perspective taking, saying the grand scheme of things, this is a good problem to have. The other thing to remember is that people experience distress when they get to the lower end of that reaction range. So somebody who's like totally happy and they're a super ass kicker and they're really high functioning and they're like at operating at a nine on a scale of 10 all the time, when they have a loss or they have something bad happen or they come down with an illness and they're like at a seven, that feels really bad for them, you know, in, because of what they're used to as compared to, I mean, often uh, we find that some of the happiest people are people who actually live in second world countries who they have food, they have water, they have access to healthcare. Um, they're safe. Those people actually report high levels of happiness and well-being because they have what they need. So we might look at it and say, oh my gosh, we, we have such a great life compared to them, but we have this sort of more money, more problems kind of situation in the richer countries where we tend to report higher levels of distress, um, be, you know, because of what you're saying, having these, I guess, bigger or high under problems or just being used to being at that upper limit. Um, we get stressed when these, when these things happen, when in perspective of the grand scheme of things, maybe they're not the biggest deal. Right. So, so I think coming, looking at it from both ways, like I don't want people out there to think my problems aren't valid and I'm being silly or I'm being entitled. No, I want you to recognize that if you are in distress or you are stressed out, something is pushing you to the lower limit of your reaction range. And what is that? And how can you counteract that? So I don't want to invalidate it. On the other hand, it can be a coping technique to say my biggest problem, you know, is that my tire popped on the interstate and I had to call AAA or whomever. And that's really awesome as compared to not having enough water to drink today. You know, so to the point that it's soothing and it helps you to cope, that's awesome. But if it makes you feel like bad for your problem, that's not helpful. <laughs> yeah, that's a great point. So kind of coming back to nutrition then. Mm -hmm. what, what sort of role does nutrition have on mental health? I mean, I know at least just for me personally, if I am not well fed, I get angry, like super angry <laughs> and moody and violent. I'm just like not a nice person to be around. I know with, uh, with my ex, every time I'd like come and if I was kind of like upset or something, she'd be like, have you eaten? I'm like, I don't know. She's like, okay, let's get you fed. Let's get you fed big guy. And then she like make me some food and then I'd be great. And then I'd be all happy again. <laughs> So it's like, mm -hmm. it's such a huge, huge thing. And, um, but I mean, obviously just kind of beyond those like more basic things, how, how does um, nutrition impact your brain? How does it impact your, your psychology, your ability to even just cope with, with stressors when, when they're introduced into the system? Mm -hmm. This is a fascinating area. And I'm certainly more of a student than I am an expert in this area. Um, so I'm sure that there's people who actually spend their life researching this. And in fact, I have looked at some papers that look at the influence of different kinds of food or food groups on things like depression, anxiety, attention, autism spectrum, so on and so forth. I think the big rock statement that I can make is that there are foods that cause inflammation and there are foods um, that have a neutral effect on the body. And then there are foods that work like medicine. And so I have read some pretty compelling studies about the impact of having a really inflammatory diet on anxiety and depression in particular. I have read a couple papers um, that study, for example, the impact of gluten um, in the microbiomes of people who have autism spectrum disorder. And um, there are cases, there are anecdotes of young people who have gone on gluten-free diets and or dairy-free diets, just low in inflammation diets or, or low inflammatory diets who have had significant improvement in their symptoms. So without a doubt, what you eat impacts your microbiome and we call your gut, your second brain, you know, it is closely wired with the brain in your head. And there is a very significant interaction there that we are really just starting to put our finger on and be able to understand. How does that translate to day to day, you know, talking with people and clients, I I'm always asking my clients how they're eating and I'm listening for, um, a couple things I'm listening for how inflammatory that diet might be. So how much 
processed food that might have a really high level of sugar might be spiking their insulin, how much of that is going on. And then how much food are they having um, that might have a high omega-3 content, or are they supplementing with fish oil or omega-3s that might either help to balance um, or have a positive effect? I I do have a friend who's a psychiatrist, and she said um, that fish oil has been used or is written kind of off-label by some psychiatrists to treat things like bipolar disorder, major depression, um, because it has this anti-inflammatory effect on the brain and on the body. So I think there's a lot more to come on that. But even if you're somebody who doesn't know thing one about the brain, you know, that some foods spike your insulin, that insulin is a hormone and that that hormone is going to impact your eating habits, your sleeping habits, your mood, your consciousness, your ability to attend and to focus. Um, And so by taking better care of what you're eating, you are taking better care of your hormone levels, and thereby your neurochemistry. Um, So I think people have to consider themselves and their nutrition, like a little N of one study where you can pay attention to how foods make you feel. If they make you feel like crap, they're probably not doing good things on the inside of your body. And if you feel fabulous after you eat them, that's probably important data. I am not one to promote like elimination diet or doing any kind of diet in particular, I am a huge advocate for paying close attention to how certain foods make you feel and for eating a broad range of things. So for example, if dairy is bad for you and it makes you feel bad and icky, but once a month, you just really want some blue cheese or some ice cream, you should do that. And you should figure that out, (laughs) you know? Um, So I'm not a person who has black and white beliefs, but nutrition and mental health are very, very closely related. And I think we're going to find out a lot more detail about that in the, in the decade to come. Yeah. And I really loved how you kind of emphasize the, the awareness piece, because that is so, so important. And I, I actually literally this morning or maybe last night, I can't remember. Um, I did a little Q and a, I haven't done a Q and a in a long time and I got just like flooded with questions. And one of them was, um, do you get everyone to track macros or, or what, how do how do you manage someone's diet without tracking macros or something like that? Okay. And one of the things that I said was, well, unless they specifically have uh, a disorder, like a history of disordered eating or something like that, I always get everyone to track macros for a couple of months because most people have terrible awareness of what they're actually eating. Mm-hmm. And they don't understand exactly. Like you said, they don't pay attention to how they feel, you know, like I'll get clients in, like some of my athletes and they're like, yeah, I'm bloated all the time. I'm this and this. And I'm like, mm. what are you eating, man? Right. And they have and then, no idea. Exactly. And then all of a sudden they start tracking the first week. I'm always like, they always tell me, oh my God, I didn't realize I ate so much crap. And I'm like, mm-hmm. oh, okay, well let's just keep going and not really worry about that too much. Just get more accurate at tracking every right. single thing. Right. And we get everything in and then we're like, okay, how have you been feeling? And they're like, well, not very good. And it's like, okay, what's the first step that we can take? We start making small adjustments here and there, whatever pace they can, they can go That's and tolerate. Right. And then eventually after a couple of months, they have this completely new level of appreciation for the caloric density of food, um, the nutritional mm-hmm. content of food, mm-hmm. like phytonutrients, getting a variety of different vitamins and minerals, uh, their hydration status, all of a sudden, like their, their training check-ins are like, oh yeah, you know, I just didn't feel that, that uh, energized today, but I actually realized that it was because yesterday I was kind of dehydrated. I went out for a really long run, didn't do this, didn't put some mm-hmm. salt in my water, mm-hmm. blah, blah, blah. And like their feedback is just exponentially better because totally. it's like, it's really crazy to think how something as critical as like what you're consuming to keep you alive ends up being such a distant thought, you know? And, and I get how, you know, with being busy, having kids and having a career and whatever else is going on in people's lives, you know, it's, it's easy for those things to kind of slip away. But I mean, especially if you're busy, it's, it's kind of sort of counterintuitive, but you need to emphasize that stuff even more so you can have the resiliency to just do more and be more productive and, and rebound quicker and get better sleep and do all that stuff. So it's, it's, it's kind of wild. I completely agree. And I think, again, I know this gets, I know this idea is spoken about a lot in economics in regard to, um, well, let me just, 
let me just make the example. I think there are people who have plenty of time on their hands and probably, you know, have like enough time and enough money where they can take good care of the nutrition. And then there's people who are like super busy and probably super rich who can have people like cook their food and buy their food and take care of their menu and manage all that. And then there's most of us who are somewhere in the middle where, like you said, we can't afford to have a private chef and somebody to do our grocery shopping. Um, but we're pretty stressed and we're pretty busy and we could really benefit a lot from taking good care of our nutrition. So I think that's the rub. It's like, we probably need it the most, but we have a smaller amount of bandwidth to really give to it. Yeah. And I mean, the, the funny thing too, is that people are so stuck on this kind of dichotomous style of thinking where, you know, it's an all or nothing. And the number no, of times yeah. I hear people saying that it's like, oh, well, you know, I just got to get this, you know, diet and know exactly what I can and can't eat. And it's like, why don't we just start with one thing? And see yep. works. Then if that's good, then we can keep going. And they're always like, no, but I did this before. And I'm like, okay, well then why don't you still have the results? Oh, because you couldn't do it. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Okay. So let's yeah. just pile it back and assume that maybe there's some things that didn't work out. We could do a little bit better this time. Actually, one yeah. one thing I wanted to uh, to add. Sorry, fin finish your thought. No, I was going to say yes. That's my shtick. My shtick is nutrition is a long game. Oh, it's yeah. a really, yeah. really long game. So one thing at a time is worthwhile. To to your point that if you try to up in you know, become an intermittent faster or eliminate all these things at once, or you're, you did terrible because you had pizza night or whatever. It's just, that's not the point. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Lack of, lack of patience is, is tough. Sometimes. Totally. Um, anyway, yeah, go so, ahead. So, so what I wanted to ask was coming back to exercise, I wanted to know if you were aware of any sort of difference in terms of the modality you're utilizing, like whether it's uh, more cardiovascular based, if it's strength training, hypertrophy, mm. different types of conditioning, or mm. maybe even just regular sporting activities like ultimate Frisbee, football, whatever. Like, is there any really significant difference in terms of the impact that has on your mental health or mm. are they all just kind of like pretty darn good? Okay. So there, I have two different kinds of answers for this. My first answer, which is based on my professional experience and based on research in like motivation and sustainable exercise is it all depends on what you enjoy and what you're motivated to do. So like ultimate frizzy could be like the number one calorie burner and like the best possible thing for your mental health. But if like, if you don't play it or you don't have access to it, who cares, you know, or if you don't like it. So the thing that the person will do, uh, the thing that they enjoy or the thing that they want to get better at, they invest time and energy in improving their competency. That's the thing that's going to get them the most bang for their buck. Um, so when I am talking to somebody about getting going and they want to have some benefits uh, of exercise, either physically or mentally, I start by asking, what do you like? What have you done before in your life? Is there anything you're interested in? Um, my other answer is what does the literature say about this? And a lot of the research on the impact of physical activity on brain health and mental health is cardiovascular. I think the main reason is because it's super measurable. So you can tell somebody to get to a certain heart rate or to be on the treadmill for a certain amount of time. Um, so there's the, the, the body of literature on resistance training on lifting weights is smaller Last year, I was on a dissertation committee for somebody who, or two years ago, um, who was looking at the impact of resistance training on cognition and attention. And there's just very little that's out there. The other thing that there's much less of is like HIIT training or interval training. What is the impact of really high intensity interval training? Um, I saw one really cool MRI study on a difference between kind of steady state cardio and high interval training and different ways that the brain responded, but it was like 10 participants. And, you know, they were like, there's really not much in this area. So I think we have a lot more to learn about that. What I will say is when people exercise and they do something they think is badass, it improves their self-esteem and then it improves their self-efficacy at their ability to do it, which also both of those things have benefits to mental health. So if somebody finds an activity 
um, that they, they feel proud that they did after they did it, that's going to be good. Um, and if somebody feels like they admire themselves, that's what self-esteem is holding yourself in esteem. So if they esteem weightlifting or rock climbing or running a half marathon or whatever, that is going to have a positive effect. Awesome. No, that makes sense. It's, uh, yeah, I, I remember reading that previously that most of the research was, was on cardiovascular health. Yeah. I'd like to see, I guess a little bit more on that, but I mean, yeah, it makes sense that just due to like kind of practical limitations, especially the people who would be seeking out help for mental health, maybe. Well, and I, one of the main arguments, I'm remembering the lecture I heard from the individual I told you about from Brigham and Women's Hospital who was lecturing mm-hmm. on Alzheimer's. They think that exercise is really good for the brain because number one of how much increased blood flow you get into your brain. So if your heart's working harder, then you're increasing your circulation. You're, you're getting a lot of blood flow up there to the brain. So you're just giving that organ a lot more oxygen, a lot more blood flow. So cardio, you know, cardiovascular is measuring that. Now there's a lot of people out there listening to this who are like, yeah, well, my finisher or my kettlebell swings or my whatever is definitely getting my heart rate up. So I think that those of us who know fitness have all had a strength training session. That's a really hard cardiovascular workout. So you're getting that benefit. It's just that when this has been studied in a controlled environment or in a lab setting where they're hooking people up to things, they've been doing it with kind of that traditional model um, of cardiovascular activity. What I think is so fantastic about strength training, uh, and about weightlifting is that as people become more and more competent, like you said, they have to start doing more complex things. They start to have to lift heavier weight and they start to, um, enjoy that or appreciate that. In other words, even though it's painful and it's uncomfortable, uh, there is this effect on the individual, like, I can do this. I can work harder. I can get stronger. And they start to think about it in this, uh, I guess, scientific way, you know, by increasing their volume or increasing uh, the, the load that they're bearing or by increasing their calories, they're going to get stronger. And I think all of the mindset, all of those ideas you need for getting stronger physically are easily transferable into what you need to get mentally stronger. Yeah, no, that's a great point. And it's, it's so funny because coming back to your initial comment of the whole, like all roads lead to Rome, right? Yeah. Like, I think anytime you specialize in something, whether it's like darts, curling, cards, fitness, sports, whatever it is, mm-hmm. that process might look different in application, but the process itself is almost the same. Yeah. Like it requires dedication, patience, attention, uh, you know, passion, dealing with frustration, that whole mental toughness and resiliency, like, you know, I look at myself when I first started lifting weights and I tell this to everyone because it's, it's kind of embarrassing, right? Like I went into an Olympic weightlifting gym and the women were outlifting me, you know, mm-hmm. and that's not a joke. It's not like one chick was who just happened to be really strong. All of them were outlifting me because I was just terribly weak. And, um, you know, and then it's like, what, like almost 10 years later and I'm a little bit stronger now, you know? So it's, <laughs> it's kind of crazy to think like, there's no way I would be able to handle any of this stuff or even just like whatever, you know, life experiences have happened back then. And, and I think a lot of that stuff is so trans transferable or transmissible to, to just life, you know, as cliche as that sounds, you know, you learn these things in training where you're like, Hey, you know what? These things are correlated. They're not necessarily causal. And so this situation is probably also causal. And you kind of start to differentiate between those things and have a little bit more of a, a reasonable, uh, perspective on, on different situations. And so, yeah, yeah. It is so empowering to see that you are able to change your body and the way that that works. And I really think that there's something so empowering for all of us who strength train to understand, like if I work hard and I change my behaviors, I can have an outcome that I want. It's just a matter of how hard I'm willing to work for this. And actually, (laughs) People might laugh when they hear me say this, but Arnold Schwarzenegger in his autobiography talks a lot about that, about how many lessons he learned from bodybuilding as a young man that were transferable into his career as an actor and his career as a politician. Um, I think it's unbelievably empowering. And I, I really think it's like a mental health 
skill to think about resilience in this similar way as, as building strength in your body. So funny, actually, because I read um, Arnold's autobiography and Mike Tyson's autobiography back to back. And they were just worlds apart. Like Mike Tyson was just one tragedy after another. Uh-huh. And then Arnold's was just like, I swear to God, like he, he's, he was just like crushing it every single page. And then the part where he got divorced, yeah, two pages, yep. and then he just went right back to crushing it again. And I'm yeah. like, man, this tells you so much about where each of these individuals are coming from, like in, in yeah. their, their headspace. It was so cool to, to see that kind of dichotomy um, from reading them back to back. It was, it was really wild, but it was definitely an interesting book. Um, yeah. Just to, 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 I guess, double back to what you're saying about um, the, the physical transformations. Like, I don't really coach people who like physique uh, based. Mm-hmm. You know, so I don't really coach bodybuilders or anything like that. Mm-hmm. I, I do have them. And most of my athletes have a physique goal that's secondary, but they're predominantly strength athletes. Okay. Um, but back in the day, um, just being a PT kind of starting out, everyone wanted to get in shape and look better and lose weight and stuff like that, basically. And um, I remember seeing so many people who would come in and they're like, I want to look skinny because I want to be confident in, mm-hmm. in my body and blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. And I would try and explain to them that like, you know, so much of that feeling of empowerment and autonomy that you were just talking about is process driven as opposed to outcome driven, because it's like, they, they start being like, Oh my God, I never thought I could lift this weight. Like you were saying, and all of a yeah. sudden crushing this weight, you know, I've lost 10 pounds. I'm still 30 pounds away from my goal, but I did this. I never thought I'd be able to do it. Oh my God, what else can I do? You know? And it just kind of starts opening up that like, what if, and, and that, that on its own is like, that's where I think the real transformation comes from. Not necessarily like someone's external appearance that obviously might help but I don't think that it's strong enough to really cause a, a deep change. I think mm-hmm. that would be superficial in nature. And so it's, it's, it's interesting that you kind of brought that up. Um, let me just see here. One of the last, I guess, uh, we're kind of coming up. We're almost at that hour mark. So I want to be respectful of your time. Just Thank one you. last question, I guess, yeah. is do you know of any good resources that people can utilize to, you know, who maybe are dealing with, with things like that? I made a post not too long ago. Um, I guess it was men's mental health week. I never really follow these things. It's like in Canada, every single week is a new holiday mm-hmm. but I made a post about it because um, I actually recently started working with a clinician for, for PTSD and that's great, it, Daniel. pretty helpful actually. Like yeah. hard to say exactly what it is, but I feel better. And, you know, my responses are different. I'm not having as many episodes and things like that. So I feel yeah. like it's trending in the right direction. And I think that a lot of people deal with things in, in silence and that don't necessarily need to, you know? Um, and so do you have any resources or places that people can reach out for, you know, depression, anxiety, whatever, that they can maybe get some additional help with? Yeah. Thank you so much for sharing your own experience. I think that makes a huge difference. I think that's a huge resource for people to know that, um, it's helpful to talk to somebody. Um, there's a, there's a book right now that I'm planning to read and it's called, I think you should talk to someone and it's written by a therapist who's in therapy. So part of the book, straight up. yeah, yeah. If part of it is about her experience in therapy and part of it is her experience with her clients. I'm really looking forward to reading it, but I have a therapist. <laughs> I, I am the most biased person on earth, but I personally feel that everybody should have one. And if this is an audience of people who have a nutrition coach or a strength coach or any of those other things, then it's congruent with your values to think about talking to someone. And you don't have to have a diagnosable mental health condition that is like in your way every single day in order to ask for that. Um, The number one resource that I recommend for people is to go to psychology today. And this is used in Canada and the United States, psychologytoday.com. It is a directory of mental health professionals um, that are licensed and you can put in your, the area that you live in. You can put in what type of health insurance you have. If you want to use health insurance, you can enter in what gender uh, practitioner you want to work with. You can put in different concerns or issues that you might want that person to have specialty in. And what you will get is a list of providers that are licensed in your area 
um, who have a photograph and a bio and information like what kinds of therapy they practice, what their fees are, et cetera. And I think it's extremely useful to go on there and look because it's like shopping. <laughs> it's kind of like being on match.com. The number one most important predictor of whether or not therapy is going to be useful is the quality of the relationship between the client and the counselor. So whether that person's a psychiatrist, a psychologist, or a master's level social worker, mental health counselor, if you feel that that person is trustworthy, if you feel that you can connect with that person, that they understand you, and if there's good rapport, the outcome is most likely going to be positive. So it's important for you to shop and look for that person because you're probably going to pick somebody who, I don't know, either the photo speaks to you or the bio resonates or when you call them, that first phone call that you have with them, that's five minutes or 10 minutes, that's just like a little hello, um, is going to help you to feel like, yeah, this person is picking up what I'm putting down. That is very, very important. Even if you're not sure that you're ready, I still would encourage people just go on there. Psychology Today has like jillions of articles and blogs that are all written by mental health professionals on every single topic. It's very approachable and digestible. Of course, they have a popular magazine that people are probably familiar with as well. But I really encourage you to go there, whether you read or you shop um, for a provider. That's my number one go-to these days. Awesome. That's great. And so where can people find you? Thank you. My website is drlewisconsulting.com. And on my website, you can find links to podcasts like this or articles that I have authored. Um, you can also find my course. If there are fitness professionals listening, I offer a continuing education course called psych skills for fit pros. And, um, you can find the link to psych skills for fit pros there on my website. And please, please follow me on Instagram. I'm at Dr. Lewis consulting. And I try about three times a week to post something that integrates, uh, physical activity or strength and conditioning in with mental health or psychology. So um, that's my little baby and it's easy to follow it and get those little nuggets throughout the week. Awesome. So definitely go make sure you give her a follow on Instagram and check out her website as well as uh, the resource that, that she listed. All of this stuff is going to be linked up in the show notes, guys. So make sure you click and check it out. Um, Lisa, thank you so much for jumping on the episode. It was a really, really great chat. I loved it. Thank you, Daniel. It's a pleasure.